From the heart of the Midwest in Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to One More Cold Call, an Indiana University Maurer School of Law alumni podcast. Each week, over a casual cup of coffee, Dean Parrish meets with accomplished alumni from around the world and from all walks of life. Over a season of episodes, we hear from law school alumni who have unique stories to tell about the unfolding of their professional lives and the lessons they've learned along the way. We start each podcast off with a little bit of Indiana University Maurer School of Law trivia and history. Did you know that the law school was the first law school in the United States to teach cybersecurity laws as a separate standalone course? We were the first to offer more than one cybersecurity law course, and we were among the very first law schools to offer, offer information privacy law. Today, the law school offers one of the United States' largest curricula in information privacy and cybersecurity law and policy. In addition to the JD and LM degree programs, it also offers a unique MS in collaboration with the Kelly School of Business and the Luddy School of Informatics, Engineering, and Computer Science. Now you know. Today, I get to welcome Aaron Trance to the podcast. Aaron is a 2000 graduate and for many years has served with distinction as a member of our alumni board. Aaron is an attorney in Chicago with Jenner and Block, where she is the co-chair of the firm's investigations, compliance, and defense practice, and a member of the firm's monitorship practice. She represents clients across a variety of industries and investigations and complex litigation, including cross-border investigations into financial crimes and corruption. Erin is at the top of her field. Last year, she was uh, named by Crane Chicago as one of its notable women in law in 2020. Well, in 2018, Global Investigations Review recognized her as one of the top 100 worldwide women in investigations. She previously was named by the National Law Journal as a Chicago 40 under 40, and she's been named several years a rising star in Illinois. Just recently, she was included in Best Lawyers in America for White Collar Criminal Defense. She has twice received the mentor award from the firm's Associates Committee, including most recently in 2020, and she is the former co-chair of the firm's Women's Forum and a member of its steering committee. Erin, so great to have you on one more cold call. Thank you, Dean. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. Let's jump right in. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your practice? Uh, what is uh, monitorship uh, practice and, and how is that different or related to your practice related to cross-border investigations and compliance? Sure. Uh, so I've, I've been so fortunate. I've been at Jenner for over 20 years, um, but it feels like it's been many jobs uh, without leaving uh, the firm. And so my uh, my work in our investigations practice largely is a combination of doing internal investigations for companies, sometimes initiated by a government subpoena or what's called a civil investigative demand, where the DOJ or the SEC reaches out to a corporate client of ours and says, we want documents. And so we'll help the company uh, investigate the issue that's under review and advise them uh, and work with uh, the client to respond to uh, law enforcement or the regulator. Um, sometimes an investigation comes about in other ways. You have a whistleblower who, who brings up an issue, maybe internal audit is doing routine audits of say expense reports or financial documents and identifies an issue that needs to be investigated. Uh, and those are internal investigations that 
may never see the light of day. Nobody may ever know they're happening. Uh, we can't advertise them on our, uh, on our website or on my bio. And so a lot of that investigative work is, is done quietly. Uh, and we uh, follow the facts, we advise the client and help them address any issues. Uh, I also, part of our practice and mine in particular is uh, compliance work. And compliance is getting more and more attention, I would say in the last um, five to seven years, as the Department of Justice in particular has um, put more attention on corporate compliance programs. Uh, and so I spend a, a fair amount of my time advising companies on how to develop compliance programs, improve their compliance programs. Sometimes if they've had a problem, uh, where did it go wrong and, and how do you fix it in your compliance program? Uh, and then the monitorship practice is, is really a, a unique and different and really fun aspect of, of my job. So monitors are uh, put in place for companies or organizations after um, they've reached some sort of resolution, uh, usually with the Department of Justice or some other regulator or law enforcement um, body. So uh, for example, if, if an organization has entered into what's called a deferred prosecution agreement, part of the resolution uh, may be a corporate monitor. And what the monitor does is help that organization reform. Um, and the interesting thing about monitorships is uh, one, you're independent as a monitor. You don't have a client. Uh, your role is really born out of contract. Uh, and so by that, I mean, um, in the example of the deferred prosecution agreement, uh, there would usually then be a consent decree. And so it's that consent decree that defines what it is the monitor does. And so the monitor then is, is a creature of that, uh, the four corners of that consent decree. It lays out your duties, your reporting obligations. And so as a monitor, uh, you're independent and you do the tasks laid out for you in that consent order. Uh, and really um, what we've tried to do with our monitorship practice is, is professionalize what it means to be a monitor. And we've, as a firm, and, and I in particular have done this a few times. And so we, we've learned best practices. We have a sense of what works and what doesn't and uh, try to, to bring those best practices to each new monitorship. I may be misremembering, but am I right that you literally wrote the book on monitorship? Is that, am I right on that? <laughs> so I, I did write, I co-wrote the first chapter of a treatise on monitorships. And what I will say, I think is probably one of the best and most interesting chapters. It's all about um, culture and, and how to change the culture of an institution. And I think companies and, and organizations that have monitors um, often are going through a process of cultural reform. And it's not easy. And uh, so much of what, what we wrote about in that chapter and what we try to do in monitorships is help an organization 
uh, identify where it may need cultural reform and really work with the organization on how to accomplish that. And it's not a one size fits all. Uh, we don't always know best how to do it, um, but we do know strategies uh, to work with monitored entities on how, how to achieve really long lasting uh, cultural change. It's such an important role, but it's also a fascinating practice. I, if you look back at your career and you, you, I asked you to describe one or two of the most fascinating cases that you've had, uh, is there one or two that jumped to mind that you'd, you'd particularly highlight? For sure. Um, so one of the, the most interesting, fascinating matters I worked on uh, was for a company with a joint venture in Shanghai. And I was asked to go to Shanghai with a colleague and negotiate um, for the joint venture an anti-bribery compliance program. And so I spent, uh, I had three trips over the course of six months. Each trip was for two weeks. Uh, and that was the first time I had been to China uh, and in Shanghai in particular, it's just a fascinating city. It's huge, it's like 25 million people <laughs> and it's vast. Um, but to be uh, in this position where each day we were sitting down with our Chinese lawyer counterparts, trying to come up with a way to create an anti-bribery compliance program in this 50-50 Chinese-US joint venture uh, was both professionally challenging um, and extraordinarily rewarding. And, and also, I think, navigating the, the cultural differences um, between the US approach to anti-bribery compliance and the Chinese approach. Um, you know, we, we sort of had, in a way, the Communist Party as a presence in our process um, in the sense that the Communist Party already had a very formalized, structured, anti-bribery uh, set of policies. And so at the outset, we were told, well, we don't need an anti-bribery compliance program here the Communist Party already has one. And so you can't create new policies for this joint venture. They're already subject to these existing ones. And so what we figured out is we could sort of skip the policy part and go right to procedures like business procedures. How, how would you implement controls within this joint venture to accomplish what both sides agreed were the policy objectives? Um, and that's then where we, we focused our efforts. Uh, so that was one that was really fascinating and, and also introduced me to the international aspects of, of my job and, and set me, I think, on a path of doing more of that kind of work. My own background, I, I write in the cross-border international area. I always find that to be kind of most exciting these days. You know, if you're talking about bribery, I also saw that you led a global anti-corruption risk assessment, which I think was 25 countries throughout South America, Asia, and Europe, and and uh, and work to try to revamp their global anti-corruption compliance program. Can you that that really just sounds like an amazingly large project, and uh, and an amazing experience. Can can you describe what it involved? It was it was uh, my role was to in essence oversee the teams that were in each of these countries doing the work and. 
and it was a, a really unique opportunity. Um, our client uh, invested in an incredible amount of, of resources, both financially and, and in terms of their own legal and compliance personnel to be proactive and to say, you know, we, we know we have a, a small issue in one country, let's do a read across and look at these 25 other markets to see if we might have a similar issue there. And while we're at it, uh, here are two other areas that we think have potential risk uh, to us as an organization. And let's, let's start looking under rocks. And I gave that company just an incredible amount of credit for doing that work because often I think organizations tend to be more reactive, right? Something comes up, it's investigated, it's resolved, they move on. Um, and, and companies don't always wanna invest uh, the time and the money to, to do that sort of pro prophylactic health check. Um, but I think more and more they're recognizing that when you do that prophylactic health check, you can get ahead of an issue and in the long run, it, it will save you money uh, than if you kind of wait and see what, what blows up down the road and then you're spending the, the resources on investigations and DOJ subpoenas and things of that nature. When I would assume the liability exposure can be just humongous on some of these global uh, corruption investigations. Uh, am I right there or am I just? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's right. And, and uh, I think more and more we see cross-border uh, law enforcement cooperation. So companies are paying fines and penalties and um, disgorgement, not just in the U.S., but in Brazil and in the U.K. and in the EU. And, and so, yeah, it's the consequences of having a significant issue that's undetected uh, can be uh, really financially um, just terrible. Uh, depending on the nature of the issue and, and the organization. It sounds like you've got you know this fabulous practice that's got to be challenging, but but you've also done a lot outside of just your practice. Uh, you co-chair Jenner and Block's Women's Forum, and as I said earlier, you you were a member of its steering committee. What, what does the Women's Forum do, and and what was your involvement with that? So the the Women's Forum is an organization within the firm. Uh, for women attorneys of, of all levels. So we have associates, partners, we have discovery attorneys, staff attorneys. And I would say the, the focus of the group has evolved over time and in, in some ways, depending on who co-chairs it. Uh, but the overarching consistent goal is the... Um, retention and promotion of women attorneys in the firm and, and to give women the resources they need to be successful in the firm and, and in the practice more generally. Uh, when I was co-chair, one of the things that I focused on was emphasizing for more junior women attorneys how to think about your network. Uh, I remember when I started my practice, women partners would talk about business development and I would listen to them, but it, it seemed like something very amorphous, 
uh, something very unattainable. And over time, what I realized is that, especially in a large firm where we're competing for high dollar value litigation matters, it's a very competitive market. Our rates are, um, are high. You wouldn't hire us to do smaller dollar matters. Um, it can take 10 or 12 or 15 years uh, to get to a point in your career where you have contacts who are in a position to hire you on multi-million dollar cases. And I didn't realize that as a junior attorney. And so when I uh, led the Women's Forum, I um, focused on helping junior attorneys grow their network. So getting on the junior board of an organization that you're passionate about, um, how to stay in touch with, frankly, your law school classmates, uh, who over time will end up, many of them being in-house and a source of, of business referrals, um, how to um, build your profile and your brand within the firm, which then helps you down the road, uh, better network and, and market your skill sets and generate business. So it's thinking about all the foundational things that you can do as a younger attorney that lay the groundwork for being able to originate business later. And I think for women lawyers in particular, um, having resources that encourage them to do that, to think strategically about how to do that is really important. Um, and it's nice to see more and more women in general counsel positions in, um, on boards. All of those types of leadership roles help help women in, in law firms then generate business through those networks and connections. Yeah, I think those networks are so critical. We, we actually started, the law school started our junior alumni steering committee, a, a, a board for people who have been out less than 10 years, uh, precisely for that reason. It's wonderful yep. to have your very senior, you know, um, uh, near retirement alums that are serving on your boards, but they don't really need it. They're doing it for you. But actually right. having having a couple of sort of easy ways to get on a board early on can open up other board opportunities. And, and um, you're right. I, you know, I remember my own time when I was in practice and they said, look, we'd love for you to develop business, but we don't take any case that's, and this was, you know, 20 years ago, more than that. We don't take any case that's less than $250,000. So, <laughs> and you start thinking, well, good luck. How right. am I going to do that? And so I think you're absolutely right, right on the networking there. Yeah. Absolutely. And it can be overwhelming if, if you don't sort of have people explain to you, what does that path look like? And there are things I can be doing now that will set me up for success in five or seven or 10 years. Now, I also think, uh, I think sometimes students, uh, we emphasize a lot about public service here. And I, I think some students who are going into more corporate practice don't realize how important serving on the nonprofit boards, because I have to say most of the people that it, sometimes it's easier to get into a nonprofit board. And also you end up interacting with people that are on other boards and actually are able to, to uh, bring business your way. And so having a strong public interest commitment can actually sometimes be one way for even a corporate attorney to be able to make connections they otherwise wouldn't. Absolutely. And I mean, Jenner is, um, I mean, I'll brag for a moment, but we, we are very committed to pro bono. Uh, we are consistently number one in terms of pro bono hours per attorney. And that's really part of the culture of, of our firm. I actually, before uh, you and I were talking, I'm working on a pro bono matter right now 
uh, reviewing a case file for the uh, Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project. Um, but you're absolutely right. And, and one of the things we have found is our clients uh, want to partner with us on pro bono cases. Um, and often they don't have necessarily the infrastructure to take on pro, pro bono matters on their own. So by working with us, we, we create teams, we take on cases together, the firm can uh, contribute the infrastructure and the resources we already have set up to, to take on pro bono work. And it's through that partnership that we're building even stronger relationships with our clients, which also, also helps generate more business, uh, billable work. So it really is a great way to both serve the public, um, donate your time as a lawyer to those in need, um, but also create these really strong client relationships that uh, can lead to more billable work and, and business generation too. Talking about bragging, I, I think I saw something that Jenner and Block was fairly recently recognized for its work with the Women's Forum and its commitment to helping uh, uh, basically retention of women. Am I, am I misremembering that too? Or that's another thing that, that the firm does particularly well? We, we do that well. And, and it's been, because I've been here for so many years, it's been really gratifying to watch how the firm has evolved and improved in, in this area. And, and what, what I see, and some of this is born out of my compliance work. Uh, in, in the world of compliance, what we talk about is, uh, if you don't measure it, you won't do it. Um, and so in compliance, it's really important if you want to incentivize certain kinds of compliant behavior, it's important that you measure it uh, as best you can and reward it uh, when people are doing it well. And as a firm, what I've seen around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is we are doing more to measure um, how we engage with diverse attorneys. And that means staffing on our matters, uh, who runs our practice groups, who sits on our management committee, who's on the policy committee, you know, in these positions of leadership. Uh, we measure that. And when you start to measure things, you have more quantitative data to assess whether your subjective feeling about how you're doing really aligns uh, with the reality of what you're doing. And, and so it's been really interesting to see how we as a firm have held ourselves accountable and that's spurred even greater action. And so I'm really proud of, of what Jenner has accomplished in that space. And we have a lot of wonderful women and other diverse attorneys and leadership roles. And, and I think it makes the firm better. And I think that's what our clients wanna see too. And, and our clients are doing that as well. Uh, so it's, it's been um, really gratifying to watch. Well, if I turn the clock back a little bit, when you first got started and you were first uh, leaving law school, did you think you'd be doing what you're doing now in, in cross-border investigations, compliant, white-collar defense? Um, was that sort of in your law school plan? Not at all. <laughs> not, not at all. And, and I, when I started at Jenner, I, I was just so happy to be doing litigation at a, a firm in Chicago, which is where I grew up, uh, that had such a wonderful pro bono reputation. 
And I really didn't know what I wanted to do beyond being a good litigator. And I, I really valued uh, the ability here to evolve in my practice. I spent the first 10 years of my time as a lawyer doing both commercial litigation, taking depositions and arguing motions, writing summary judgment briefs, um, but also doing internal investigations with former um, uh, government prosecutors who, who were prominent in the firm. And so I, I was able to grow up as a lawyer doing this wonderful mix of different kinds of cases at a time, I think, frankly, where the market was more welcoming to just like being a good trial lawyer. Uh, I think the market has changed and is, um, you know, over the last five to eight or so years, uh, wants more specialization. And so the firm has created practice groups and, and we're now organized in that way. Um, and it's really been some of these matters like that global uh, anti-bribery review. Um, I did a monitorship in Switzerland for four years. I uh, led an investigative team for the General Motors ignition switch case. All of those matters sort of put me on a path to what I'm doing now uh, that I really did not foresee at the beginning of my career, but it's been um, a, a happy coincidence. <laughs> and and it's, it's really great to be at a place that's allowed me to evolve uh, because of those experiences. You know, I talk with a lot of alumni and um, very rare do you have somebody that predicted exactly what they were going to do. I think the, yeah. the standard story is one of unstandard, that it's non-traditional. Right, right. You know, looking back, do you have any particular memories of Bloomington or the law school that just, you know, particularly stand out or are striking in your mind? I had such a lovely experience in Bloomington. Um, you know, I went to uh, a very large public undergraduate institution where it, you know, if you're in a school of 20 or 30,000 people, you can feel a bit lost. And when I came to the law school, um, it felt a little bit like high school, but in a good way. <laughs> we had the lockers in the basement and you knew all your classmates and there was a really strong palpable sense of community and being in it together. And that created such a wonderful experience for me as a law student. Um, and I will always look back fondly on the three years I spent in Bloomington uh, because of that. And, you know, academically, I had so many wonderful professors and, and, and surprises. So I remember taking federal taxation, which I thought I would hate. Uh, I really was not particularly interested in it. And I walked away from that class just truly like blown away because it was all about policy and policy choices. And all of the tax rules are really about incentivizing behavior. And as a society, what kind of behavior do you want to incentivize? And what kind of behavior do you want to discourage? And so it, it took a concept that I thought was going to be very sort of rules-based and boring and, and put it in this broader um, lens of, of policy choices. 
And that's something I've really carried with me in, in my career. Uh, and frankly, tax comes up in almost every case I work on. Um, clients are often thinking about what are the tax consequences and implications uh, of, of a matter. Uh, so, so that was um, a particular experience I had that, that I often think back on. Well, I think uh, Professor Letterman, who's currently uh, directing our tax program, that's music to her ears. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, I, you know, for, I think we're the highest ranked tax program in the country uh, as a, for a law school that doesn't have a tax LLM or a formal tax clinic. And, and largely that's because we've got some fabulous faculty members. We've got this great relationship with Indiana Legal Services, their low-income taxpayer clinic, and then just a whole bunch of different things that Professor Letterman has put into place. Uh, but uh, that's um, wonderful. Yeah, no, it's I, I think I think you're the way you describe that about the policy implications is true in so many areas of law where the the substance doesn't sound that exciting, but then you get into the underlying policy and you realize there's some really big, juicy issues there that are right. that, that are worth exploring. Well, if you were to do it all over again and, and you had advice for students who were just starting their careers or just maybe starting law school, are, are, is there something you, you, you'd pass on? So I would say um, stretch yourself, uh, try, try different things, try classes that you might not think you would enjoy. Um, I think in, in a legal career, pushing yourself to uh, sort of outside of your comfort zone is where you learn the most. It's where you grow the most as a lawyer. It's where you learn how to think on your feet. And so I think you can start that in law school and take, take the courses that may scare you. <laughs> uh, try the clinic. Um, that may intimidate you. Uh, and I have found, and it's not just in my practice, but I think in the practice of law generally, more and more work is global in nature. And I think many, that's just a reflection of, of where we are as a society. Our, our clients are um, doing business all around the world. And they have issues all around the world. And so I, as, as a former member of the alumni board, to hear about all of the opportunities to, um, to travel, uh, to partner with organizations in other countries as a law student, I just think it's so wonderful. And so I would encourage students to take advantage of that, to learn from it. All of those experiences will uh, redound to your benefit when you're out in, in the world practicing. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, I think that's fabulous advice. Uh, you know, we're really proud about the global sort of outlook we have here, because I think you're right. I think it's clearly where the world's going. But I like your first point as well about stretching and, and might as well do that in a place like law school where things are a little more forgiving, where you can really, yes. you know, really uh, stretch your wings. Aaron, it's been so great to have you on uh, One More Cult Call. Thanks for spending the time. Uh, we're really proud you're one of our alums, and we've appreciated all you've done with the alumni board for over the years. But uh, thanks for spending a little time out of your busy schedule to, to talk to us. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. And thanks to our listeners for joining us, too. 
Don't forget to follow us on social media at both at Austin Parish and at IU Mauer Law on Twitter and Facebook. And we hope you make plans to come back to Bloomington soon. Each year, over a thousand alumni come back to campus, judging moot court or mock trial, serving as mentors or helping our students in other ways. We hope you will too. And when you do, please reach out. Until the next time, this is One More Cold Call, an IU Mauer School of Law alumni podcast.